The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In Christian-dominated medieval Europe, what did it mean to be excommunicated? How much of an earth-shattering punishment was it? And what can excommunications tell us about the attitudes of people in the Middle Ages? In today's episode, Dr Felicity Hill of the University of St Andrews explains all to David Musgrove. Okay, so today I am joined by Dr Felicity Hill of St Andrews University, who is the author of Excommunication in 13th Century England, which is published by Oxford University Press. Felicity, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. So first question, um, a simple one. What was excommunication? Excommunication uh, is actually common to to various different religions, but um, Christian excommunication in the Middle Ages, and I'm, as you said, my book um, is focused on the 13th century. But excommunication, there were two types: so minor and major, or lesser and greater. As you might expect, minor is um, less of a big deal, uh, and it really just meant. Uh, exclusion from church and from the sacraments. Now, obviously, in a Christian society, people were meant to go to church a lot, um, but it is worth bearing in mind that people weren't expected to receive the sacraments, the Eucharist, or to confess more than actually once a year um, in the 13th century. But still, not being able to go to church and so on um, was potentially quite a, a big thing. And then major excommunication um, was the more serious, and that's really my focus, And that meant um, not only exclusion from church and from the sacraments, but also from from the communion of the faithful, as they put it. So basically all Christian society. So you were meant to be ignored, ostracised by fellow Christians. Um, So this was the much more serious um, uh, sanction. In fact, the most serious sanction um, that was available to the medieval church. So that, that, this sounds pretty significant. Um, just you've, you're, as you said, you're focusing on the 13th century in your book, but does the sort of the, the 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 broad sweep of excommunication remain roughly the same across the Middle Ages and across geographically as well as temporarily? There were definitely differences. Um, excommunication as a kind of concept goes way back. Um, what is in the Bible, for example? So um, Jesus talks about. Um, kind of warning a wrongdoer in, in private first and then amongst um, a few people. But eventually, if, if somebody won't listen to reason, um, then you are to treat them as a heathen and a publican. Um, and St Paul talks in Corinthians about um, destruction of the flesh uh, to save the soul, essentially. Um, and it certainly happened in the early church, excommunication, But there is, um, for example, little evidence of the ritual of excommunication, the kind of solemn ceremony, um, until I think the 10th century. And there were differences geographically as well. One of the main ones is the um, areas of Europe, particularly where um, heresy was a big problem. So um, in the south of France, for example, excommunication was much more linked to heresy. So if you um, are excommunicated 
in that area, there might well be an expectation almost that you are therefore a heretic. And in 13th century England, that wasn't it wasn't didn't have the same connotations. Of course, that's not the practice so much, but but the kind of implications or the the, the way it might be interpreted is different. Um, and there were some uh, important changes to the way excommunication um, worked introduced by Gregory the Seventh. Um, so this is the Pope in the 11th century who's famous for um, the so-called investiture contest. And he kind of changed some of the contamination rules. So one of the main things about excommunication is, as I said, it's meant to be exclusion from Christian society. Um, and the way this was kind of uh, the rhetoric used about this was one of contagion. So excommunication was spread. If you if you talked to an excommunicate, you yourself then became an excommunicate. It was a contagious infection. Um, and he uh, kind of mitigated actually the, the rules there and decided or decreed, I should say, the Pope that uh, minor excommunication was the consequence of communicating with somebody sentenced with a major sentence. So this was lesser than it had been in the earlier Middle Ages. And that was a really significant change because it it meant that excommunication wasn't quite such a big deal. And the issue was that it was in danger of becoming an epidemic um, because, of course, if something can just keep spreading, I think we're all well aware of this in these days, um, it can just keep spreading and spreading and spreading indefinitely. And so he kind of mitigated the rules and that was a very significant change. Um, and at the same time, he also uh, allows some exceptions so that close family members, for example, would be able to communicate with an excommunicate um, without any consequences. So those were two really significant changes. Um, before the period that I'm focused on. Um, and then um, in the 12th and 13th centuries, uh, the codification of canon law and the big um, developments in the theology, the, for example, the, the creation or the beginning of the universities um, meant that there was a great more, um, a great deal of thought went into um, law. And there were additional safeguards put into how excommunication could be used. Um, by the end of the Middle Ages, the, I, the idea is that uh, excommunication was used a lot more and for quite minor offences. The big one is excommunication for debt. So by the time we get to the Reformation, um, supposedly excommunication was used a lot um, and for really minor offences. Uh, that's helpful. And, and the idea of um, excommunication as kind of a, a medical process that you mentioned earlier. I think hopefully we can come back to that a bit uh, in the um, later on in the conversation. Yeah. Um, so you, you sort of referenced um, in that answer the the ritual of excommunication and how that came about. I think in, in the tenth century you said. I think um, that sort of leads on to the question of who could excommunicate who and and what was the actual process involved. Do we actually know much about what was actually involved in being excommunicated? Yes. So what the, the main the main prerequisite for excommunication was having sufficient warning. So as I say, in the Bible, this was this was part of the thing, right? You warn first, second. So three warnings was the expectation. Um, in terms of who could excommunicate, um, higher clergy, so you, you're not supposed to have a parish priest um, excommunicating, although I suspect they sometimes did against the rules. Um, but certainly, I think sometimes people assume it's just the Pope, but absolutely not. Um, so, uh, obviously, the Pope, archbishops, bishops, archdeacons. And in fact, um, if you're talking about an ecclesiastical court, you could even get 
a bizarre scenario where a secular person is presiding over the court and technically could excommunicate um, not as um, any kind of spiritual authority, but but as a because they're presiding over the court. But generally, um, a slightly higher churchman, so an abbot as well, or a prior, the chancellor of the University of Oxford, um, they could all excommunicate. And then the process, yes, warning being really crucial. Um, and the point of that really is that if you are being warned that you've done something naughty and you refuse to um, right your wrong, stop doing what you're doing or make amends for it, then you're being um, consummatious. So you are dis being disobedient to the church. And that was grounds to excommunicate. There are different processes of different types of excommunication. Um, a most usual sentence where a named person is excommunicated by an individual clergyman, you would have these warnings. And then in theory, just in a court, I excommunicate you. The ritual then comes actually as part of the publicising the sentence. Um, and the ritual involved candles and bells explaining the offence of the person, um, telling the congregation to ostracise, to shun, avoid the excommunicate, and warning them that their soul would suffer in hell if they didn't make amends. Um, and candles were thrown to the ground to kind of extinguish, to kind of symbolise the extinguishing of the soul um, in hell. But with the, unless you come to your senses and make amends. So it wasn't seen, it wasn't supposed to be this permanent thing. It was always with the ability to um, undo it. And I, I think we might come back to that. But but the ritual, in theory, the excommunicate wouldn't have to be present. In fact, they, they shouldn't be present because they're not allowed in church. So the excommunicate themselves might be in court and hear it with a quite boring process. Um, but then the publicisation of it later on would involve a much more dramatic ceremony. There is another type of excommunication, which is um, automatic, might not be worth going into too much detail because it's quite technical, but essentially certain crimes, um, and this is again a, a kind of early 12th century development, although uh, heresy, it had always been assumed that you were kind of automatically excommunicated if you were heretic, but increasingly more and more crimes were added to this list of things that the second you did them, you were automatically excommunicated um, spiritually. Now, the church would have to confirm this with a named sentence if they wanted anyone to actually treat you as an excommunicate. But in theory, in, you know, in terms of your soul, you were um, excommunicated the second you did this. Um, the big crime being assaulting a priest or a clergyman of any kind. Um, but it, it took off and a lot of things. So in England, uh, Magna Carta was in fact covered by this type of automatic um, sentence. Um, but yes, the processes are a bit blurrier because presumably a lot of people were excommunicated without ever knowing it. Right. OK. So it all sounds quite dramatic, potentially, the, the process, um, particularly the, the, the ritual in the church bit. Um, do, do we have really clear um, sources that explain exactly what happened there or are you having to, um, to, um, to, to make some estimations there? Yes. Yeah, so for the earlier Middle Ages, we have... Um, these great litanies of uh, kind of curses um, that come into this uh, ceremony. 
and they, they're really dramatic and they say things let him be cursed while he is sitting and while he is standing and while he is eating and while he is drinking and when he was walking and um it goes they go on and on and on um everything you could remotely think of doing and some of them go through every body part you can think of um and and they're quite dramatic and we have ones that do exactly the same thing in um, vernacular languages in the later middle ages there is a weird blip in the middle where there are no definite examples of quite such drama um and the question is did this go out of fashion for a while and then come back or is it just an issue of sources and it was continuous but even in the, the less dramatic um, periods, so there's a cursing psalm, Psalm 108 or 9, depending on which version of the Bible you're using, that um, was definitely used in this context. Um, and even if we have the, the slightly shorter um, and doesn't, you know, they take quite a long time to name every single body part and every single action that somebody could, could be doing. Sure. Um, but even in the shorter ones, that final sentence of, um, you know, let him um, spend an eternity in hell with the devil and his angels. Um, and let his, um, so the Magna Carta of excommunication in 1237 said, um, and let anyone who infringes this charter smoke and stink in hell. Um, which is, and, and then the chronicler Matthew Paris, who tells us this, said, and they extinguished the candles, and presumably they were maybe tallow candles, which are quite stinky. And he says the smoke really gets up into everyone's nostrils and is really quite, almost would evoke hell, um, the, the stinking and smoking. So this could definitely be a dramatic um, and quite scary uh, ceremony sounds almost cinematic, I suppose, in a way. Um, the way you're describing. <laughs> yes, in fact, the um, the Thomas Beckett film from the sixties. I think it's not dramatic enough. It's um, it's all very stately. Oh right. So, so, so I guess all, all those all those all those those big curses that would apply for major excommunications, as you as you yes. talked about uh, at the start of the conversation. The minor excommunication, I suppose, it's it's a bit less uh, a bit less dramatic for those. Yeah, none of none of this for right. for minor excommunication at all. Yeah. Okay. Were certain sorts of people more vulnerable to excommunication? Um, do you think was it certain classes of people or, or genders? It depends a little bit on what you mean by vulnerable. So there are two ways of interpreting that. One is more likely to get excommunicated in the first place. Um, and the second is how they might deal with excommunication after that they were sentenced. In terms of who's more vulnerable, I mean, I think if you look at crime today, men tend to be um, in prison and um, generally sentenced more commonly than women. I think that's still true. Women absolutely could get excommunicated, but there were, seemed to be less of them. And the classes of people thing is a bit difficult because on the one hand, if you are of a you know higher um, kind of political class, a ruler or, or whatever, you might be able to kind of pull strings, be able to get away for longer um, and I think we might come back to King John later on, but he, you know, it's quite a long time before the Pope actually excommunicates him because there is a reluctance um, to, apart from anything, undermine the social fabric because it, it puts people in a difficult position if you excommunicate somebody they're supposed to be obeying. So on the one hand, they they were perhaps more protected. On the other hand, 
they might be more likely to be in disputes with clergymen for there to be a kind of venomous um, aspect to a dispute that might result in excommunication. Certainly what we can say is that anybody can be excommunicated, I mean, except like children. So men, women, clergy, there's even um, a probably apocryphal story of, of a pope finally becoming pope and saying, oh, good, now no one can excommunicate me. So, yeah, absolutely anyone can be. Um, and then the the second kind of interpretation of vulnerable is what happens to you afterwards. Now, if you are, again, a ruler, you might be able to kind of say, you're not going to treat me as an excommunicate or else, um, perhaps threaten violence. So if you're in a position of power, you might be able to, again, live with a sentence more easily. But again, on the other hand, people might use it against you. So that's that's very interesting what you just said there about the impact and how far people actually respected the uh, the, the rulings of the church here. I guess which 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 brings up that broader question of of um, how integral to the, the general fabric of society the church and church teachings are. Um, and and this is a, quite an interesting way into it, I suppose. Can you? talk a little bit about how far people actually respected um th- these sorts of rulings whether you whether it was truly stigmatizing or whether people in some instances just ignored it and 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 carried on what does it tell us about the the relationship between everyday people and 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 the church that they were um that they were bound to yes now this is a question which i have to start with a caveat um about the source material and the the basic thing being overwhelmingly our sources in the Middle Ages are written by clergymen of one sort or another. And as you, if you you think about it, there's no real reason for a clergyman to say or to write. So-and-so was excommunicated and then everybody treated them exactly as they were supposed to do. And it was all great. And he or she, you know, made amends and was absolved and um, it was all excellent. What is much more uh, likely that they would record is that somebody hasn't been treated appropriately. So while we have far more records of the latter of of, um, disobedience, it doesn't actually have to mean um, that that nobody treated excommunication seriously. And what when sources um, say that somebody sought absolution, um, particularly in um, some of the most valuable sources, uh, for example, Episcopal registers, so the bishops writing down a kind of memoranda of what's going on in their diocese, or I should say, not bishops themselves, but their their scribes, their secretarial (laughs) men. They normally said something along the lines of, and -and so-and-so came to his or her senses and sought absolution. Occasionally, you know, you might get a narrative source like a chronicle that gives a bit more detail about actually what went on behind that. But within the church sources themselves, they don't give us, they don't say, oh, and they were ostracized and they were really upset by that. And so they sought absolution. However, yeah, we absolutely have a lot of sources that um, indicate that the community did not necessarily treat excommunicates as they were supposed to do. Um, So you get you know, so-and-so has been intermingling with the faithful and spreading their contagion and the people forgetful of their own salvation, um, do not fear to associate with this person. And also just lots of people who we know were excommunicated for, for months and years on end. And that simply would not have been possible if they were being treated as they were supposed to. So in that sense, we can we can say with absolute certainty that it was not something that generated automatic respect amongst the populace. Um, The traditional view is that it was used too often. 
Um, I would caveat with that with if you look at the study of excommunication in other um, time periods and indeed like Jewish excommunication equivalents, nobody ever says excommunication was used the correct amount and therefore everyone respected it. It doesn't seem to matter very much. Um, <laughs> how much it's used, actually, people are always going to resist something that expects them to treat their loved ones or their acquaintances um, as though they don't exist, essentially, or to only chastise them. Um, and I think we can all agree if you come across somebody in person and you're meant to just blank them, it's really awkward to do that. Um, and it's much easier for us now because we use so much um, you know, technology to communicate and not replying to a text message is, is very different to just blanking somebody on the street. And I think the fact that it comes from on high, from um, you know these ecclesiastical powers who wouldn't necessarily be you know a member of the community, um, and you're meant to just do what they say, and and you might think they did something awful, in which case you might actually choose to shun them. But equally, sometimes there were quite petty reasons for which people were excommunicated, and um, it seems fair to say that occasionally or perhaps more than occasionally um communities just said to themselves i don't care <laughs> um i don't think this is this is fair and i think from looking at how excommunicates were treated you can see some of this kind of minor resistance to um ecclesiastical authority now that doesn't mean that excommunication was completely worthless because particularly um if you did have something against a person and they were excommunicate you've got a perfect opportunity to really uh, take it out on them so you were in a really vulnerable position if you were excommunicated but equally you might have people on side and be able to um live uh, until until you you really need to do something that involves the church so excommunicates were completely unable to practice not practice to, to prosecute in court so um if somebody comes at you to you know say oh you you stole my property or something you would have to be absolved in order to actually answer the charges to do anything legal um and of course if you start to get ill ah i don't want to die excommunicate and go to hell so you do get um, as you might expect, people are seeking absolution when they uh, start to feel uh, like their time is up. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The rhetoric of excommunication is that it's actually not a punishment. It is um, supposed to, again, make people realise uh, the, the error of their ways and come back into the church. Um, and again, some of this is the idea that really they brought this on themselves and if they could only, you know, we're trying to help them. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. 
let's go back to the the, the question of absolution, which he talks about a, a, a couple of times. So um, you can get out of being excommunicated. You yes. can you can be absolved. So how does that work? Do you just do you have to go to whoever's excommunicated you and sackcloth and ashes and say sorry, you're right, I've, I've done a wrong, and please please stop this now. Oh, pretty much, yeah. Um, you you have to be very very sorry for what you've done. Mm. So as I say, that the verb used is normally come to your senses. Um, you have to go and you have to say how sorry you are, and you have to make amends. So uh, that's make satisfaction. So for example, if you stole something, give it back or, or pay um, the equivalent amount. Um, and you would normally have to do some kind of penance. Uh, and sometimes this could be performed after the absolution. It's just, and if you didn't actually complete it, then you would um, be ex- re-excommunicated. Mm. Um, and penance could, I mean, it really depends on the circumstances. So you might have to go on a pilgrimage all the way to Rome, or in fact, for some crimes, you are supposed to go all the way to Rome to, to seek absolution from the Pope. Although it, it seems that normally actually he would delegate it and wouldn't um, actually, it's really expensive to go to Rome. And I think people often could say, well, actually, my wife and children will starve if I <laughs> go off for um, several months and I might die um, and we're at war with France and <laughs> so on and so forth. Um, but you might have to go uh, on some kind of pilgrimage. You might just have to fast or something like that. Um but you, it was not um, uncommon to have to uh, do penance um, that involved kind of whipping in um, around the, the marketplace. You might have to do three kind of circles of the marketplace um, while receiving this kind of beating. Um, and um, so church, churchyards and marketplaces, places, and you'd have to wear thin material so that in theory you could feel the lashes. It's very unclear about how much it was meant to hurt and how much it was just a humiliation. Um, but either way, this was again another kind of public, um, yeah, aspect of the sanction that that was humiliated. In fact, there is some evidence. Um, Mary Mansfield wrote a book on um, public penance uh, a few years ago, um, a bit more than that now, um, in which she says that it might have been a deterrent to seeking absolution because you then had to go through this quite humiliating ceremony in order to seek absolution. So she says perhaps some people stayed excommunicate for longer because they didn't want to to have to go through this. Mm, okay. So how how far was excommunication kind of a, a public measure by the church to keep the population in in check then to to make sure that you know to 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 to, to give the church a chance to show their power and to and to make people aware that they ought to be acting in a certain way rather than a specific um uh, action against against individuals. Well, it, I mean, it was absolutely a, a public matter. Um, and this is one of the, I think, most striking things about excommunication. There are lots and lots of different source materials that you, you can look at to, um, you know, try and find out as a historian about excommunication. And they often tell you quite different things. So you can look at legal records that absolutely never mention the ritual. You can look at some liturgy that doesn't give you any indication of the kind of legal processes. But almost everything indicates how public this was. Now, I mean, you just put it in the the context of the church kind of asserting itself. But if you think about the mechanics of how this was meant to work, if you are saying everybody has to treat this person as as an excommunicate, everyone has to shun them, there's no way of achieving that unless you tell everybody who this excommunicate was, right? So unless I say, um, you know, Dave is excommunicate, you must treat him that way, then no one's going to do so. So there is a very practical reason why excommunication had to be public 
but yes, as you say, there, this is also um, to do with, of course, um, making sure that people did toe the line. So, for example, um, there is a, a rhetoric about excommunication, which is public crimes should be dealt with publicly. So this is if somebody commits an offence and everybody knows that they did so, then the church has to excommunicate them because the church has to be seen to deal with this. And if they don't excommunicate them, if they don't pub make it public that, you know, this person did wrong and now they are being punished, then this is not going to be very good. People might think, oh, well, in that case, I could do this and not and get away with it. So this is very much about somebody has done something publicly bad and they must be publicly dressed down, as it were. In terms of the, the church asserting itself, I mean... Um, and, and, you know, you join this distinction between, you know, it being about individuals and it being about society. That really does depend a bit on how cynical you want to be. You know, I mentioned um, the medicinal or we have actually we haven't really completely no, gone into well, that. That's, that's, the, that's the next that's the next line of conversation. So let's let's jump into that, shall we? Actually, OK, so <laughs> we do that first. So, so because because at the top of the interview, you talked about it being sort of a, a seen as a contagion in some ways, uh, and and it being addressed as a medical process. So, so tell us a bit about that. How far was it uh, seemed to be more as a remedy for people rather than a punishment? Yeah, exactly. So, and this is where the the less cynical aspect of of kind of what it's meant to be doing is. So, there were actually in, in it's the rhetoric of of um, it being a medicinal um, thing is 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 really prevalent. Um, but there are actually kind of two sides to it. So there's one which is about the individual, which is this person is is not being punished. It, it, really, the rhetoric of excommunication is that it's actually not a punishment. It is um, supposed to, again, make people realise uh, the, the error of their ways and come back into the church. Um, and again, some of this is the idea that really they brought this on themselves and if they could only, you know, we're trying to help them to, to come back into the church. So the, the medicinal analogy there is, um, and, you know, famous theologians like Thomas Aquinas or Bonaventure in the 13th century would say, oh, you know, but it's a bit like how if somebody has an abscess and they have surgery on that, that's causing them pain. But it's to save them, right? So it's to help that person. So excommunication is this kind of, yes, I know it's painful now, but this is all for your own good. Um, and then the second medical analogy is, is the one of contagion, um, which is more like if you have an infected limb, uh, you better you better to chop it off than to let the um, infection spread to the rest of the body. So it's a bit like the, the kind of idea behind amputation. But of course, at the end, the limb can be reattached if the person does it anyway. So that's, uh, that's more about the good of society. So the medical analogy both comes into a kind of you, your we're trying to help you as an individual, but then also you are a bad individual and you're going to infect everybody else with your badness. So we're doing this to protect society. So in fact, the medical analogy kind of has two sides. So if we look at the, the first one, there is this, it is the duty of a Christian, um, you know, shepherd of souls to correct their uh, charges. Um, so it is possible to be uncynical and to say, you know, they really believe that they were helping people get into heaven in the long run, because if they just let 
let their parishioners do whatever they wanted uh, that was naughty, then they're going to go to hell. And that's a very bad thing. So if you take seriously this idea that you have to help your parishioners, then you're excommunicating them yet for their own good. And there is rhetoric around this that if you are a bad bad, uh, shepherd of souls, then you're going to go to hell for not correcting them. So, you know, if the, the shepherd... Um, doesn't look out for his flock and the wolf eats them, uh, then it's the shepherd's fault. It's the bishop's fault for letting these people go to hell. So there is a a very uncynical way of looking at this that really does say this was about um, helping people go to heaven. However, of course, we do get excommunication used vengefully or for petty reasons or for kind of selfish, self-interested um, reasons. Um, and then, and, and yes, absolutely times when it seems to be more about appearances and the, the slightly more cynical thing. Um, it is important, I think, in this context to be aware of the the Reformation and the, the rhetoric used in the Reformation that was very anti late medieval Catholicism and actually a lot of this has seeped into I think even to this day it goes on well that's I was going to ask you to sort of pin your colours to the master about having studied this topic in in depth where do you where are you of the cynical view or or take a more generous attitude towards it I think as things go I'm slightly more on the generous side in the 13th century at least and I think that's another important point that it might depend on when you study. <laughs> However, I mean, certainly in the 13th century, there are plenty of examples where um, I think, you know, there was very unkind use or um, misuse as well. But I think as a whole, they really did believe in their own we're saving, we're helping people rhetoric, even, even if... Um, it doesn't always seem like a very nice way to be helping people or it seems um, overkill. I mean, you know, some of the things for which people are excommunicated, you think that's eternity in hell for that is probably quite harsh. Um, You know, nicking some herbs from a Mm. cemetery, for example, you think that's quite far. So it's quite hard not to be a little bit cynical I think when it comes to that kind of thing. But the point is, is that clergy can't, they can't, um, you know, inflict any kind of blood punishment. Clergy can't spread blood, shed blood, sorry. Um, there's very little, what I'm trying to say, there's very limited um, tools for correcting people that the church had, in fact. Um, and excommunication was their number one. And you can see how almost accidentally it could quite quickly be the thing that they they resort to. Um, immediately because they haven't got anything else they can't send people to prison they can't although excommunicates in fact could be arrested and sent to prison um, if they stayed excommunicate for over 40 days Um, but you know clergy can't say oh well you're you should be executed for this and and so on and so forth so that their hands are slightly tied um, and excommunication becomes that they're you know go-to solution and and you can see how it gets out of hand quite quickly Um, but the 13th century is in England famous for um, theologians and right-meaning guys I think that the next century on um, there's a different brand of bishop (laughs) so yeah I'm slightly slightly um, on the generous side I would say but but not too far because um, there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of reason to, to take the other view as well. 
that's, that's a really helpful insight um, from somebody who's who's looked at it, just to get a sense of how genuine people felt about stuff. That I think that I think listeners will will, will find that useful. So thanks for that. You, you mentioned um, just sort of getting to the end there. You mentioned the 13th century, famous for theologians. It's also famous for for one really big example of excommunication, which is King John, who we mentioned uh, earlier which is quite a different order of magnitude of excommunication. Obviously, he was king. And as you said, the the implications of an excommunication of a king are, are, are far-reaching. So can you very quickly tell the story of what happened there? And then maybe we could spend a couple of minutes thinking about the implications. Yeah. So John uh, was excommunicated, unusually, um, quite after quite a long time of having been at, um, not at war with the church, that's definitely not quite the way phrase, um, uh, in um an argument with Pope Innocent III. Um, and in fact, uh, England was put under an interdict first. And this shows, I mentioned before, that the clergy might be unwilling to excommunicate rulers. And Innocent III didn't want to excommunicate the king as if he could possibly avoid it, but John was very stubborn. And what was going on is um, Innocent III came to the um, papal throne in um 1198. John became king in 1199. And Innocent III was young and um, confident and did very much set out to assert papal power. Um, And this had come, um, you know, over um, a century after the investiture contest where um, papal authority, the rhetoric around it was kind of growing. Um, And Innocent was really putting that into practice. And what happened is there was a vacancy in the Archbishopric of Canterbury, and it was quite standard for kings to kind of have a say in who became the next archbishop. Um, the Canterbury monks, who technically had the um, right to elect their um, the next archbishop, chose one guy. John said, I want this guy. And Innocent III stepped in, and rather than choosing between them, he did something completely unprecedented and chose a third person. Um, And this was, from John's point of view, just not the done thing. So, you know, Innocent was very much asserting himself. And John said, I do not want this. Um, He was English, uh, Stephen Langton, the the guy Innocent III chose, but he'd been in Paris, um, and obviously France and England at this time, not best of friends, Um, and he was this theologian, and he was basically unknown to John, and this was, John was deeply unhappy, but not without just cause, and just refused to accept this new archbishop. So Innocent um, puts England under an interdict, and this means that all ecclesiastical services are suspended, um, which is really unfair on the normal people who don't get to have ecclesiastical burial or marriages and so on. Um, That kind of goes on for three years, and then eventually Innocent excommunicates John. And John uh, thinks, well, I don't really care. And he is not known for being the most uh, religious of people. He, you know, would prefer to go hunting than go to, to mass. And in fact, then his bishops go into exile because they can't serve under an excommunicated king. And John goes, great, I'll have all the revenues from that. That sounds great. So this is often seen as a um, a failure of excommunication, a kind of indication of how weak it was because John just goes, well, I don't care. However, I think in some ways that misses the point because what happened is John is excommunicated. He's getting on with things. But he's also somebody who... Uh, invites um well enemies really and his barons are increasingly at this in this period getting angry with him 
And again, this this vulnerability thing. So at first, he's able to say, well, look, if you treat me as excommunicate, I'm going to physically hurt you. But once his own men start turning against him, it becomes, because they can say, well, you're excommunicated. We shouldn't be serving you anyway. And the French king of France can say, I'm going to invade because you're not even a proper king anymore. Um, The Pope never deposed John, but lots of chroniclers claim that he did. Um, And that certainly would have been the next step to actually demote him from his kingship. And if that had done, um, well, in fact, the son of the the king of France did invade um, in 1216, um, so you you get the whole period um, that's the lead up to Magna Carta, where John is, you know, um, hemorrhaging supporters, and excommunication is a really bad thing to um, have on top of that because it just gives people an excuse to rebel. Um, and I think that's really important to understand about excommunication is that yes, it's the church imposing something, but it is dependent on how everybody else decides to act. So again, if you are popular and everyone likes you, you might get away with it. Oh, well, we don't really, well, it's fine. We'll just ignore the excommunication. But if you're already unpopular or you become unpopular, you are in a massively vulnerable position because it does, it's completely dependent on how others choose to deal with it. And so in John's case, it's actually really illustrative of that. He gets away with it for a while and then it becomes a real problem when he is on the back foot anyway. So, so suddenly, um, excommunication has got political ramifications as well as all yeah. the as all the social ones that we've we've talked about before. So, just, does John die excommunicate, or does he get himself back in the good books? No. So he he realizes that he's got to deal with this, and um, so in the long run, you see, the Pope actually, um, if we're going to put winners and losers losers onto this, the Pope wins. John backs down. Langton takes position as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, and uh, England becomes a papal fiefdom, John becomes a papal vassal, and this is um, has been seen by both contemporaries and more recently as a kind of terrible, um, you know, subservient yeah, outcome for, for England. But what it meant is that John has this incredibly powerful man on his side. So when the barons do rebel and the King of France is invading, Innocent is absolutely on John's side. And he excommunicates all of them um, on John's behalf. So John does not die excommunicated. Um, I always think the, the really unfair thing about the um, interdict and excommunication in England in this period is that John is absolved before the interdict is lifted. So all his uh, you know subjects who've been living without ecclesiastical services for like five years have to go for another before they and it's not their fault at all but no john john is absolved and um yes has to kind of be very uh, obedient to the papacy and and pay money every year but gets a really powerful ally as a result okay and it's it's worth saying that john's not the only monarch who who is subject to excommunication is he there are there are other examples of it yeah and his contemporary otto the fourth um holy roman emperor he's excommunicated just before john um, the really famous example in the 13th century is Frederick II, um, again, Holy Roman Emperor, and he he is also deposed um, and uh, has just really massive disputes with um, Gregory IX and then Innocent IV, and that's a really big scandal in the 13th century and, and very much an example of excommunication being used vengefully, um, and there is much um, evidence from the time of... of Clergy and laity alike saying this doesn't seem very fair um, and we're not sure whether 
the you know the pope is acting in a in a reasonable manner in this case and it's an example of the publicity attached to excommunication potentially doing a lot more harm than good because what it's doing is publicizing the potentially unreasonable behavior of clergymen was Felicity Hill. Her book, Excommunication in 13th Century England, is published now by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 